0: The Messy Middle podcast is hosted on Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it is the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free, which considerably helps with all of the production costs you normally have, except that on Anchor, there's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on all platforms, including Spotify, Apple, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum audience through sponsorships and monthly contributions from your subscribers. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. This is Alyssa Lenick of Littlest Fitness, and I'm Kate, otherwise known as Coach Carmichael. We
1: are PhD students, endurance athletes who lift, outdoors enthusiasts, and entrepreneurs.
0: We believe the narrative of the fitness and wellness industry is often far too extreme. So, forget about the black and
1: white messages that you've heard. On this podcast, we believe that life is best lived in
0: the messy middle.
1: Hello there, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Messy Middle Podcast. I am selfishly excited about today's episode because it serves me in two ways. One, Taylor Eccle is going to come on here and answer all the questions that you guys ask me all the time that I am not qualified to speak on or maybe don't have the level of education that she does. But also, Taylor is one of my good friends. And in the greater science circle, Taylor is actually one of the people that I've met in person. We have Zoom dates, we talk, and she is my very own personal virtual PT. Taylor is wicked smart. She is like a trailblazer in her field and just challenging the way we view things on social media, especially for us young professionals in this niche, but especially in the PT field and she has these incredible evidence-based views. And, like, the way she frames things, I think, is something that we can all gain something fun, whether we're going to school to be a PT or we are a consumer or someone who goes to physical therapists and want to make sure that we're challenging our, the people that are giving us medical care, I guess, more or less. And besides that, Taylor is awesome. Taylor does everything from, what like – barbell flinging to snowboarding to backpacking and hiking and traveling and living like out of her car for a couple days as she drives from point A to point B. And so Taylor is basically my long last soul sister. She has the same eight wing seven energy as me. Um, we're very, very similar in many ways. And I'm very, very appreciative for my virtual turned real friendship with Taylor, but also the fact that I can have someone on as Awesome as her to help coach you through these things, maybe that you're confused on, and be an amazing resource for you. And like I said, she is my personal PT, so she's the. That's the reason I show you guys to her all the time, and I say go ask Taylor, go pay Taylor all the money because I can't help you with that. So Taylor, welcome. I'm so happy to have you here. I've been looking forward to this podcast for months because I'm selfish about it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much, Les. I will try to live up to that intro. Okay. We always ask our guests how they found the messy middle and what journey, you know, they took through what we call those extreme narratives, um, maybe in your career or just in your life and how you live your messy middle approach, particularly as a physical therapist now.
2: Yeah, I really like that question, Kate. I got my first injury to physical therapy as an injured high school athlete, um, and from that experience, I walked away knowing that one, I wanted to be a physical therapist, and two, I wanted to be a very particular type of physical therapist, which is to say, someone who was um, very manual focused, very pathoanatomically driven. And I was particularly interested in um, like sacral mechanics and realigning pelvises and all that jazz. And along the way, those views changed. And then I was in the very like, anti-manual therapy camp, Um, I look down on people who do manual therapy. And over time, I came to realize maybe manual therapy isn't the problem. Maybe it's the narrative surrounding it. And maybe we have bigger fish to fry in the field. And the harms of, you know, occasionally doing something that feels nice for a patient for the sake of it feeling nice isn't the end of the world. And maybe um, all that angst is better directed elsewhere. Uh, so where I would say I end up now as a physical therapist is I've kind of left that super structurally based um, everything has a very specific you know cause whether that's a postural deviation or aberrant movement. But I also am not in the camp of oh nothing matters you just need to load it um, can't go you know yes you can't go wrong getting strong but I also know there are times when you might need to deliberately offload a tissue or maybe the best thing you can do for that person in that moment is crack their back to make them feel better. So that's kind of where I ended up. Um, And I think along the way that very much mirrored my upbringing because I, as Alyssa and I've talked about a lot, come from a very strict um, homeschool family. And so I was definitely encouraged to see the world in very black and white terms. And I think, especially in my mid to late twenties now, just kind of rethinking some of those things and starting to have greater appreciation for the spectrum of gray has definitely influenced me professionally as well.
1: Yeah. And I think that's so great. Cause I feel like that's how it should happen. Right. As young professionals, obviously I am not in the same exact field as you, but I like, I feel like exercise physiology and physical therapy are like, I, I at least I tell my students, I'm like, if one's the brother, the other's the sister, they're siblings, they're super close to each other. But I think that like, that should be the, telltale sign that you're learning and growing right that something that you once believed that got you interested in your field then gets challenged and then gets challenged again and then it probably gets challenged again every single day for the rest of your life but that way you're always moving forward and making sure that your views are not you know as we all have biases but you're reducing that as much as you can or making sure that they're as informed by, you know, mixing together both the scientific literature, but also understanding that people are people at the end of the day. And I think you do a really good job at that. So that's why I think that's important to emphasize. And I know that we've worked together, but I see how you talk about that information on your on your feed and everything that you do. And so I guess we'll pivot then into questions about the profession. So for those of you that are listening um, to this podcast, what I did is I went through and I asked you guys all the questions you wanted us to ask Taylor and all the things you wanted to talk to her about because these are such hot topics. And we'll definitely have more physical therapists on probably in the future to talk about these things because like Taylor said, there's a lot of, lot of variation in these things and the way we think about these things. And so I'm sure every PT to PT has a different variation of this. But um, so you will get started here, Taylor. So a lot of people, I think, are confused about physical therapists, what exactly they do when they should go to a, a, you know, a DPT over maybe a doctor or another type of professional, and do they need to go to seek prevention? And then when they're there, what are good things to actually ask that, their PT about um, when they set up that appointment? Yeah, that's a great loaded question. I think
2: (laughs) in most states, you can see a physical therapist without any sort of referral or prescription, um, or at the very least, they should be able to call your primary care or whoever and get a referral signed if that's something you need for insurance or whatever else. Um, when to see a, a PT versus a different discipline though, I think is just a matter of what are you hoping to get from mm-hmm. that encounter, right? If you're looking for active interventions um, that don't involve pharmaceuticals or imaging, PT would be the way to go. If you have you know a nasty trauma or a history of cancer or something along those lines, you probably want to go to somebody who can order an image and that's not going to be PT in most states. Um, But if you have that kind of general, like, I'm overall pretty healthy, but this kind of bothersome injury, or maybe there wasn't a specific injury, but you have this thing that kind of cropped up over time, um, that's when going to a PT can be a good idea, with the caveat that it's probably good to ask around and not just randomly Mm -hmm. go to anybody. Um, and social media is a great resource for that because you, if there's somebody that you really respect, you can always reach out to them and say, Hey, do you know anybody in such and such a suburb of Chicago or wherever you might be? Mm-hmm. Um, and then once you're there, I think there are a couple key things is one, how much certainty does that person have when they're telling you what's going on? Um, probably in most cases, the more certain they are, um, the more likely you might need to get a second opinion.
1: Yes, (laughs) Uh, been there, experienced that.
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. The second thing would be um, to what extent are they emphasizing things that they do to you versus things you can do for yourself? We want the emphasis to be on what you can do for yourself because time and time again, active management, meaning you participating in the process, is much better than passively receiving things. Um, the third thing I would ask is what objective key performance indicators are you going to measure to track my progress? And I would be willing to bet that will throw off a lot of people. Um, and if they're really uncomfortable with that, or they don't offer up that information without you asking, also maybe time to get a second opinion. Third thing, how long will this take and how flexible are you with how often I come in? Um, a trend I see in a lot of clinics and I've worked places like this is where, there's the expectation that every patient is seen twice a week for at least six weeks, even if maybe one a once a month checkup is enough for what you need. Mm-hmm. Um, so having that flexibility to really tailor your plan of care to your needs and your preferences, right? Maybe you have a really high deductible and you can't afford to go twice a week for six weeks. Maybe you're really busy. Maybe your condition doesn't merit it. You know, if they're trying to force you into a particular um frequency of visits, that's a red flag. And then finally, how hard is it, right? Um, In the absence of really acute pain, you know, if you tweak something and you're super flared up, I don't expect you to have a great, you know, really hard workout in your first couple sessions. But if you kind of have this nagging injury, um, and then they're prescribing exercise as an intervention, you should be getting pretty close to failure or else they're not probably not doing their job. And of mm-hmm. course, the other caveats would be immediately post-op, that sort of thing.
1: So I think from there, I think that's a good place. This might be a double, this might be two questions in one, but I know just based off our former conversations, they might be tied in together is um, where, like, where do you see that lacking role of use, the utilization of strength in the physical therapy field? And then the narrative around, I think that often ties to the conversation of people having pain and then being afraid of strength training kind of, I feel like that comes kind of, Package together. Um, so, can you speak to that possibly? Yeah,
2: absolutely. I think there are a couple different narratives that are really prevalent. One being that you can hurt yourself if you don't do things with perfect form, another being that you have pain because you're weak, um, and then another being that physical therapists um, don't necessarily deal in the realm of strength training. And so, to the first mm-hmm. thing I would say, you know, what is perfect form in the first place, right? Um, Ask 10 different coaches or physical therapists and you'll probably get 10 different answers. And so using like, Oh, you know, you need to be able to squat with your toes straight ahead, barefoot, ass to grass before we can put a barbell on your back is totally arbitrary and has nothing to do with your goals. But a lot of people have bought into that narrative and then clinicians give that narrative to their clients that, oh, you can't do X because you can't do this other arbitrary thing, per, you know, my idea of perfect, um, Yeah. which I think really just perpetuates this idea that I will hurt myself if I don't exercise perfectly, um, which I think is a really harmful narrative. Then the other issue is that when we say, oh, you have pain because you're weak. Well, maybe, maybe not. You know, I worked with a division one basketball player once who had been told that he had back pain because his glutes didn't fire. And I looked at him and I said, dude, can you jump off one leg and dunk? And he said, yeah. I said, do you really think that you have weak glutes and laying here on the table is going to make them stronger? And He just started laughing. He's like, no, man, that's whack or whatever. Um, And that's not to say that strength and physical preparation can play a role in Symptoms and symptom modification is just to say there isn't always this clear correlation between X is weak, therefore you have pain. Um, mm-hmm. You know, yes, maybe you have pain because you were really underprepared for the activity you tried to do and you stressed your system or a particular tissue beyond what it was ready for. Um, or maybe you're doing too much. Over time, chronically, you know, Alyssa, you're a great example of that with your foot stuff that you <laughs> had going on of trying to run on your toes all the time, doing a ton of tiptoe stair work, running extra laps barefoot, like all the loading your body was experiencing, your feet were experiencing was in one particular way. So, of course, they were pissed off. And when we added more movement variability there, including, you know, gasp, heel striking, and comfortable shoes. Um, who would have thought? Yeah, the problem kind of sorted itself out, and so I think understanding that, yes, sometimes strengthening a particular tissue is going to make a big difference in symptoms, but also, not necessarily. You know, there are very very strong people who have pain.
0: Yeah, yes, I can speak to that. <laughs> Go ahead, Kate. Uh, along the lines of of pain and uh, perception, we had a, a listener question that I thought was interesting um and wondering in your opinion is labeling or diagnosing the particular pain helpful or hurtful in your opinion um and i know you you had already kind of mentioned that if your physical therapist is absolutely certain it's you know one particular thing to seek uh maybe another opinion so um i'm i'm imagining that goes in line with your thoughts on that
2: yeah yeah i think it's really desirable from a patient's perspective to be able to blame pain on something that's very clearly fixable. Um, So I just want to like say, if you've been a patient in physical therapy or had any healthcare professional tell you, oh, you hurt because of this one very specific thing, like that's, it's very natural to want that is we all want answers about our pain, right? I think then the flip side of that is we have, as clinicians have a responsibility to understand, okay, what is the diagnostic accuracy of my special test in my clinical exam? What is, you know, the asymptomatic prevalence of these so-called aberrant findings? And, you know, A great example of that is a large percentage of people with no back pain have disc pathology, right? So, you know, if I'm telling somebody, oh, yes, your back absolutely hurts because your MRI from six months ago had a bulging disc, like maybe I shouldn't be so certain about that because lots of other people have bulging discs but no pain. Um, I think it's really helpful, though, to be honest with patients upfront about that, right? The shoulder is another great example of that. The clinical examination for the shoulder, for the most part, is pretty terrible in terms of its diagnostic accuracy. Same thing when you look at MRIs. But I can be really honest with the person and say, you know what? If it's your labrum versus your biceps tendon, the management is still going to look really similar. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe I have some ideas as to why I think it's one and not the other. And we're going to test those out over time. But really at the end of the day, these are the things that I see are opportunities to improve. These are the things you can't do that you want to be able to do. And here's a plan to get you there. And with that plan, is a timeline of if it's not getting better in these many weeks, who would be the next person to talk to? And I think someone's laying out that plan um, is sort of the, the, the counterbalance to, I'm not giving you a very specific diagnosis, but I am giving you a very specific
1: plan with some built-in accountability. So with that, then, while we wrap up our little section on seeking out a professional, things you should be looking for, everything like that, do you have any good resources or recommendations for people who are, you know, trying to prevent injury and stay pain-free? And, you know, there's a lot of information on the Internet where people, you know, they, they trickle the line where they probably don't actually need to see a physical therapist, but they're concerned because they have athletic goals or, like, running or lifting or whatever goals. So they want to make sure that they're preventing injury and they're worried about pain and like having that occur. And so how, what are good resources for people to use and, or how can they maybe navigate that to know if information is legit and evidence-based versus maybe like a little fear mongery or a little like too confident, maybe is the best way to say it.
2: Yeah, I think that's great. I think um, what you kind of touched on is how confident is this person in, or, and or how doom and gloom are they about particular mm-hmm. things Um, is a really good starting point. And I think even just asking yourself, what if this thing that I'm reading is wrong, right? You know, if I go and a resource I would recommend for anybody would be the E3 Rehab YouTube channel and podcast. It's three PTs who are great guys, really smart, and they put out some really good information. And if you Mm -hmm. go watch, say, one of their videos and think, hmm, what if they're wrong? Like, what does that mean for me? it it really doesn't mean all that much, right? Because the information that they give is very sensible, very straightforward, pretty well-nuanced, versus if you go read, say, some of the ridiculous things that Squat University puts out or other people that say, you know, oh, you have to sleep a particular way or else you're going to end up with back pain. Well, like, yeah. if they're right, maybe you should fix the way you sleep. But if they're wrong, you're potentially missing out on you know, squatting in a way that is comfortable to you or sleeping in a position that is comfortable for you without the stress Mm -hmm. of, am I sleeping in the correct position? You know? And so I think just asking like, what if they're wrong about this? Um, Mm -hmm. and, or how stressful would it be for my life to implement their suggestions is also a good, a good question.
1: Oh, I like, I like that. I like that for everything. I think that should be okay. Apply that to everything. I really like that in general. That's a good one.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Along that lines, I think there's a lot of information out there about warming up and cooling down uh, for various activities. Maybe it's lifting, maybe it's running. Um, What's the legitimacy of warm ups and cool downs? What types of, you know, exercises might you be doing in a warm up and a cool down if you think it's even necessary? Um, Walk us through what that looks like from a physical therapy perspective.
2: Yeah, I think I'm going to answer this question with equal parts physical therapy hat and strength coach hat on because I don't think there's any difference in the answer. Um, And the point of both a warm-up and a cool-down is nonspecific, right? The goal Mm -hmm. is to get your body temperature a little warmed up, get those systems going that, hey, we're about to do something that's not sitting on the couch. So does it matter what you do to warm up? Probably not. Um, Mm -hmm. I usually tell people, you know, hop on a piece of cardio equipment for three to five minutes just to get your heart rate up a little, or if that's not your jam, you have a little bit of a dance party or whatever, you know, floats your boat, but then I don't care what you do to warm up. You don't need to do five different banded exercises and two things with a lacrosse ball and, you know, some sort of fancy breathing and contorting into like some weird position on the floor. Like... You don't, and I, I'm going to tell a funny story about that. Actually, about a year and a half ago, I was in one of my phases where I was on a dating app, and I went out with this guy a couple times, and it seemed promising. And so, for the third date, we discovered that we were both members at the same gym in our area. So he's like, "Hey, do you want to go to the gym together?" And then like grab a beer and a burger afterwards. And I'm thinking, "Oh my gosh, this is great! I get spent Like fifteen dun, on the foam roller. And meanwhile, I just grabbed, you know, I think I just like grabbed an empty barbell and started squatting and I was warming up to my working weight. And I don't even remember what my working weight was, but I started, you know, maybe in like the eight to 10 range. And then I was hitting fives and then triples. And then yeah. just like heavier singles as I was getting closer to my working set, which was maybe like a double or triple. And he got so annoyed at me and he's like, oh, do you always take this long to get up to you know your squats? And I just looked at him and I said, I didn't roll around on the ground for 15 minutes. I've been here for 10 minutes. What are you talking about? <laughs> Needless to say, that was the last date <laughs> we ever went oh, on. No.
1: <laughs> but it, was... it is true. And it's funny because that's I walk into my strength training t- sessions and I get there five minutes before and do like two minutes of cardio and maybe just like a barbell complex. And then I'm like, all right, Noah, where where are we starting for my warm-up sets? And like I would have years ago felt like I was like the worst human on earth for doing that, but like it's efficient. It gets the point done. And I, I might go on a foam roller a little bit because it feels good if I'm killing time, but like, that's it. Then I get started with my day.
2: Yeah, exactly. I know a PT who tells some of his patients who are athletes that have come to expect foam rolling as part of their quote unquote movement prep. Um, -hmm. talk about just like taking and you know making something sound fancier than it is. He just tells them, roll around and get sweaty. I don't care what you do. <laughs> and I like that. Because yeah. I used to be somebody that needed to do all the Kelly Starrett banded hip mobilizations and who knows what else. And it took me 30 minutes of all this extraneous bullshit to even be able to squat. And I remember there were times when I went to the gym and be like, crap, I'm not gonna be able to squat today because I don't have enough time. You know, I only have you know 40 minutes to get this workout in which I laughed because um one time when I knew the lockdown was coming in Oregon in gyms I was running out of time and I think the gym closed in like 20 minutes and I literally like ran in there worked up to a heavy double of back squats and laughed. <laughs> and
1: I laughed and like, you live to tell the tale yeah I
2: got my stimulus so- into the day <laughs>
1: Um, So building on that, then I think when we talk about warm ups, I think mobility and foam rolling, I know a lot of people get hung up on that. And that's definitely something that people are asked about. But I think something that people love to talk about, though, as well, is using mobility and stretching and like, when should you do it? Should you do it before? Because you see people like you were kind of alluding to that a little bit about doing like 106 mobility drills before you get started with even your first working set. And so Where do those play a role in people's routines, if at all? And maybe like, I think maybe the better way is like reframing the way we think about mobility versus stretching and how they serve our, you know, our strength goals and feeling tight or things like that. And so maybe like a a physical therapy strength coach meets, you know, the middle perspective on that and the practical application of those things versus maybe, maybe uh, people's misinformation they've been receiving on those.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'm gonna let you in on an industry secret, which is nobody knows what the heck mobility is, and everybody makes up a different definition for it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I think that's just helpful to keep in mind. I think the first question is, what's the purpose of doing those things, right? If the purpose is to warm up, well, then it doesn't matter whether you do that or you do your cardio. It just, it's up to you. And I think, you know, to the people who maybe you know have been training for quite a while and that's really part of their routine if that helps you get in a better headspace for training, by all means, do it. Like, you know, maybe you decide one day, oh, I want the mental toughness to not feel like I need to do 106 things before my lift. Or maybe that's how you decompress from your day and get ready to train more power. Yeah, you do you man, like, just I think the thing I care about is not what people do so much as do they know why they're doing it. And if you're doing it for the sake of decompressing, awesome. If you're doing it because you think you'll break if you squat without doing it first, then maybe we should have a conversation about that. Um, Mm -hmm. But as far as what is the role and do those things have a place, you know, I think even in my mind, there's a lot of uncertainty over what actually changes range of motion, right? When we look in the literature, we know um, stretching, for example, like, you know, just typical like three by 30 seconds or whatever. Yeah. You get a short-term change in range of motion. You'd get that if you, you know, get your hamstrings scraped or whatever else they do, but it doesn't last. None of those things Mm -hmm. last. Um, if you do eccentric only Nordic hamstrings, the muscle fascicles will get longer in your hamstring. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now maybe we're talking about, you know, remodeling tissue. That's plausible. That makes sense. Um, but then it gets to the other issue which is do you have a perception of tightness or are you actually lacking an arc of motion and if i had a dollar for every time somebody told me that they had tight hips i would have paid off my student loans most of the people that tell me that they have tight hips have totally normal hip range of motion they just for whatever reason feel some tension and you know if you talk to like a yoga or woo woo person they'll say you know your hips hold emotional things I don't know. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's not. I have no way of proving it one way or the other. I frankly don't care, you know, move in ways that feel good to you.
1: Um, Mm -hmm.
2: But I think we also need to ask, all right, are we doing these things because I have this perception that I need to be more flexible or I need more range of motion or I feel stiff, but do I already have the range of motion available to do all the things I want to do? Right. Mm -hmm. And then kind of the other layer of nuance there is, is that range of motion for relative to my body, right? So like, I'm a great example of this in my hips and my shoulders. If you look, go, you know, rotate them one way, you'll think, oh my gosh, you've got so much range of motion. It's crazy. Rotate it the other way. You're like, oh my gosh, you're so tight. And if somebody just looked at say my hip internal rotation and it was like, wow, you're so flexible and look, and then my external rotation, and it was like, you need to stretch. Well, that might be problematic because really when you put those two together, the arc of motion in my hip is normal. It's just biased Mm -hmm. towards one direction. Same thing in my shoulders. Um, And you see that even in baseball players, right? You think of a pitcher laying back his arm. Well, yeah, yeah, that motion goes that direction. It usually doesn't go as far the other way. And that's okay as long as the whole arc of motion is there, even if it's biased one direction. So I think that's another consideration to add on to the kind of the puzzle that we're creating um so the the tldr here is it feels good to it but know that in terms of value it's probably not super high
1: the messy middle podcast will be right back after a quick word from our sponsors are you confused about what supplements you should actually be taking in a world full of juice cleanses detox teas fancy promises it can really be hard to trust anything But high quality supplements when dosed appropriately can actually help support your fitness goals. And that's why I use Legion. I've been using Legion supplements since the beginning of this year. And after years of never really fully committing to one single brand due to lack of transparency in their labeling, unnecessary fluff, or just reporting things as blends and not knowing what's actually in my product, I finally found a solid science-based product line that fits my supplementing needs. Legion's products are 100% naturally sweetened, and my favorite part, they're fully transparent in their labeling, and they use dosages that are actually backed to what the science says you need to be effective and support your fitness goals. And not the least amount you can get away with, and not just labeling as blends, but fully transparently telling you what's in your product and why they dosed it that way. And this is huge, because it lets you know exactly what you're taking and if it's actually going to be effective, and then you can know what's going into your body. My personal favorites are their cinnamon cereal whey. Yes, it tastes as good as it sounds. The mocha cappuccino plant protein, Pulse, their pre-workout, which comes in non-stimulant or caffeinated stimulant based, and Recharge, the recovery blend, which also gives me the creatine I need to move weights well in the gym. Legion offers 100% money back guaranteed if you're not happy with their products and you can save 20% off your first order today with our code Middle at checkout. That's M-E-S-S-Y-M-I-D-D-L-E at checkout to save 20% today.
0: So in terms of if it feels good, do it. I think that that's, that's a pretty good recommendation and and most of the time you're probably not going to impose any harm. Uh, but I think one of the potential areas that we have talked about before is in my field, which, you know, is not as in depth in terms of like a, a physical therapist should know more than I would. So this is why I'm asking you. Um, I, you know, I've heard that certain types of stretching right before a, a strength workout could be problematic in that, Um, If you are maybe stretching too much, you're you're limiting force production. Is that the case in your experience and and the research that you've read? And if so, uh, you know, what are the limits to how much you should or shouldn't like statically stretch before a strength workout?
2: Yeah, that's a good point of clarification, Kate. I totally agree with that from everything I've seen um, and read. I would just say I don't think there's a set time limit of, you know, not that I'm aware of, oh, if it's under this many seconds typically the recommendation is avoid prolonged holds, right? Um, yeah. If you want to touch into end range or maybe do some isometrics in end range you know, where you're generating force in a lengthened state, that could be a great option. But again, I think it begs the question, like, why are we doing that instead of just doing the thing that we want to do, right? Um, Absolutely, yeah. If I'm about to Perfect. skip, I'm or sorry, not skip, if I'm about to sprint, I'm probably better off doing... A jogging, skipping progression than I am laying on a table or film roller or whatever else.
0: Yeah, absolutely, great,
1: thank you. So, building off that, then I think this is probably where most people are screaming. So, what do I do? So, like, can you give a practical application for the consumer? You know, someone they're not injured, they just feel like they're maybe they're lacking range of motion and like either their shoulders or their hips or their squat depth or whatever it is that they're doing. And they're actually trying to actively work on those things. What are actual, like maybe more evidence-based or practical ways that move beyond just feeling good, but actually changing that, moving beyond perception to actually maybe causing physical changes, I guess, as a yeah, way to yeah, say it. Absolutely. I think the first thing to ask is, is there a
2: difference between your passive range of motion and your active range of motion. So a great example of this is if I'm in the clinic and you can only lift your arm to 90 degrees, but when I move your arm, it goes all the way, then we know the issue isn't range of motion. And some people Mm -hmm. will get into like making up more definitions for mobility or talking about motor control or this or that. But really the way I think about it and the way I educate patients is, it tells me that you don't have a problem getting the joint into that position, um, is it, or the, the joint does the joint itself doesn't have a problem being in that position it's yeah. just a matter of you being able to get it there comfortably um, mm-hmm. so if that's the case finding where that kind of upper threshold is for you and then working on challenging it um, whether that is through you know maybe reducing gravity or reducing load or adding some sort of assistance um, you know a, an easy way to think about that you know adding assistance would be say you you um, you can't lift your arm very well. So you grab onto something or like use the wall, right. To walk up Mm -hmm. something like that. Um, at the end of the day, you just gotta be patient. It takes time. There's some evidence, um, in particularly post-op knee rehab for low load, long duration stretching, which are like 10 minute holds. Um, but at that really low load. So it's not so intense that you're getting muscle guarding. Um, But I think the best way to think about it is just be really patient um, and find creative ways to get into those positions. And then also know like there might come a point where it's not going to change and that's okay too. Um, None of us are, you know, none of us walked out of an anatomy atlas, right? We all have some little quirks in our bodies. And so I have an ankle that I worked on trying to improve my dorsiflexion for a solid 18 months. I did everything you could possibly do for it. It's not going to mm-hmm. change. There's probably a lot of scar tissue. I probably have some early arthritis in there, from spraining it many, many times. But that's okay. You know, I'm okay just, you know, wearing squat shoes instead of squatting in mat or whatever. Um, at some point, yeah. you just have to cut your losses and realize my body's not going to be textbook, and that's okay if I can still do the things I want to do.
1: We're not all going to Olympic lift for a year without getting Ollie's shoes and criticized for it online. Yeah, so <laughs> um,
2: totally. I so, have a client whose yeah. coach wouldn't let her. She just switched. She was doing some PT stuff with me and switched to regular coaching with me because her coach wouldn't let her squat heavier because he said her back squats weren't as upright as her front squats. I was like, bro. Wait, what?
1: <laughs> wait, that's, isn't that everyone that's on the the point, right? That- <laughs> <laughs>
2: that's
1: the yeah. point. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's interesting. So I guess this is a good pivot then is how does that tie in then with strength? Because I think you see a lot of online people talking about, well, strength training technically trains you in that in range of motion, right? So just practice being in that in range of motion. And so where does that, you know, desire for mobility and feeling less tight and having greater range of motion tie into maybe actual strength training? And where does the truth lie within maybe doing passive things versus actually just, you know, kind of like doing the damn thing?
2: Yeah, I think that gets back to the whole purpose, right? Are you doing it because you have this perception of what your mobility should be based on someone on Instagram who maybe has a history of like growing up doing gymnastics or something like that and you don't? That's probably not a fair comparison. If you're mm-hmm. trying to improve that range of motion for a particular goal, well, yeah, just work on scaling it you know, towards that, right? So if I can't say get in a position for a handstand push-up but, or even a handstand on the wall, but I can get in like an angled pike position. I can mm-hmm. accumulating time there. And, you know, over time, that'll get better. I can do some eccentric emphasis, you know, pec flies maybe to open up my chest, that sort of thing. Um, but I think at the end of the day, yeah, just move in ways that feel good to you. Strength training is excellent for everyone. And none of us move
1: perfectly. I don't know if that's quite, um, That's a pretty, yeah. So, pretty vague. I mean, I feel like that's like my approach to most things, but I also know that I was like born so hypermobile. I try not to like not like dismiss people's feelings of like they talk a lot about, you know, their perception of tightness and like their hips are tight or their chest is tight or their quads or hamstrings are tight so can you touch a little bit on that maybe then on how they can actually like maybe I guess address that tightness with stretching mobility versus lifting like where where is that perception coming from and like you just kind of alluded to it a little bit on like well their range of motion is perfectly fine so maybe even just clarifying for them why they feel that way in a way that makes it feel less like I think the narrative around that is that that's inherently bad you know what I mean and they should be seeking to fix that versus sometimes it's just you perceive yourself being tight and it is what it is.
2: Yeah. And I think that's where if we can understand that our perception of what we feel in our bodies and you know, how they actually move often don't match up. That's a really great Mm -hmm. starting point, right? So, well, if you think your hamstrings are tight because you saw somebody on Instagram who is super flexible and you're not that flexible, or because when you stretch your hamstring, you feel a stretch, you think they're tight. That in my opinion doesn't mean that you lack range of motion. It just means you're a normal human that A, compares yourself to others. And B, when you put your, any muscle in an end range position, you feel a stretch. So I think just sort of normalizing some of those things first, and then understanding, you know, hamstrings are a great example. As long as, with your knee straight, if you can get that leg to, you know, more or less 90 degrees, you're laying on your back, you're fine. You don't have to be able to get it, you know, halfway to your nose to be normal, you're normal with Mm -hmm. it straight up in the air. Um, and then if you want to work on it, you know, the best way to do that is probably honestly to load it into end range. So, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe that means you're putting in a stretch and then you start to do some isometrics against a strap in that end range position. Um, if it's something like trying to work on end range, either hip flexion or extension, maybe you're doing some deficit split squats, um, where you, your front foot and your back foot are propped up and you' lets you get a little deeper you know, flexion for the front hip extension for the back hip um, and you're just starting to train into those positions I think the issue then becomes you know are again just why are you doing it why are you trying to change it um if you want to get and how do you know that it is a in your mind a range of motion issue and not mm-hmm. a contextual issue
0: mm-hmm What do you say for people who are experiencing tightness and relate it to pain or relate it to other conditions like uh, migraines, for example? I know some people will experience tightness in certain muscles. Maybe it's TMJ or some of their like trapezius or neck or, um, and that relates to them to like migraines or um, it could be really, I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can experience tightness that relates to pain. Is it the way people perceive it? Um, So how does that uh, shake up in comparison to just tightness and lack of range of motion?
2: Yeah, that is a million-dollar question, Kate. Um,
0: I'm going to try and
2: do it justice. It's a really good question. I think the first thing to think about is the term that PTs often use for muscle tightness is called tone. But at the Mm -hmm. end of the day, nobody has a good way to objectively quantify tone um, with the exception of in certain neural disorders where you get what's called spasticity, which is velocity dependent resistance to stretch. So for example, if you you know, straighten out my elbow, it goes pretty normally, but if you move it fast, my bicep you know will spasm on you. That's spasticity. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a form of aberrant muscle tone. Or, you know, kids with Down syndrome, they're hypotonic, meaning they just don't have as much tone in their muscles compared to kids their age that don't have Down syndrome. When that comes, we're talking about things like headaches, TMJ issues, and the like, that's such a, a tough thing to quantify because we can't quantify it. I can't touch your trapezius and tell you, yes, it's tight or no, it's not. I can touch it and you might tell me Oh, it's sore, or no, it's not sore. Um, And particularly with TMJ, you know, we can change positions that your head and neck are in that may might bring relief. Um, But what's really interesting is one of the most evidence based recommendations for the management of TMJ pain is stress management, Um, because I, insofar as we can't quantify tone very well, um, or at least not very objectively. We also can't. We don't have a good understanding of stress and how that impacts, you know, the musculoskeletal system. Other than that, it does. Um, so I think, yeah. Sometimes it's just helpful to know, hey, you know what? Sometimes shit hurts when we're more stressed out, and that's not to say that you know it's fake. I said I, I tend to think of it like an amp on an electric guitar, right? The volume on the amp doesn't make the electric guitar more or less real, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you think of the amp as being like your stress in your life, you, the pain is still real. Um, it's just maybe louder than what's going on at the tissue level.
0: Or not. absolutely. I think you hit the nail on the head. As um, so, disclosing, I have bruxism, so I uh, will clench my jaw at night, and that contributes to migraines for me personally. I know mm-hmm. people experience it differently, but for me, it absolutely has, sorry, for me, it absolutely has been about managing my stress. So I love that you included that in the conversation. And I think that, um, it shows your, your range as a physical therapist, because you of course exist in a field that in some, in some ways is specialized, but of course you wouldn't want to exclude, um, more of a holistic picture. So I like that you included that. Um, and sorry, Alyssa, you look like you got (laughs) some.
1: Yeah, no, I was going to say, I think it's important to add in here too, where, I think I, I like to throw myself under the bus on the podcast just to make it relatable, but using myself as an example. But I've worked with Taylor and like for – this is about three different things I've worked with Taylor for now, give or take. And every single one comes down to, yeah, there's usually some strength or some exercise or some you know drill that she gives me that helps to work to either strengthen something or – adjust or whatever work with my pain but almost every single time it's taylor yelling at me because she calls it that i live at my life rpe of eight which if you guys understand rpe scale and strength training so every time it's taylor giving me a couple things and then saying how stressed are you and so taylor can you speak to like maybe just like how i think we talk about this with everything right stress affects everything and how we maybe we cat- catastrophize ourselves with having injuries or things wrong with our body Where really it's possibly just the fact that we are overly stressed and maybe for how like things people can maybe do to like are you, i'm basically asking you to give everyone the advice you gave me <laughs> and like <laughs> managing these things to see if it re- results and reduce pain um rather than thinking you have to do like a million mo- and six mobility drills to fix something where maybe you just need to do a few things to be a little more aware and this is this is right down kate's allen kate supports these kind of things yeah absolutely Um, I think just
2: for the people who are listening that are skeptical of like what stress influences pain, to give an example of how much pain can be influenced by perception, there was a study done a while back where people were poked with, I forget if it was hot or cold, like a a pokey thing for lack of a better word, at a standardized amount of pressure, (laughs) Um, piece of metal, right? And then they were asked to report the pain that they experienced. And in one of the iterations of that study, they flashed either a red light or a blue light at them as they poked them. And the people who were flashed with the red light reported higher pain sensation, even though the temperature and pressure of the pokey thing were equal. Um, and so that's just a, a quick example of how something seemingly so small can influence our pain experience. And I think you know there are a lot of narratives on social media that you know, oh, you have this pain, do these three mobility drills. Oh, you have that pain, you need to do something else entirely. Well, maybe those things will help, and often they do, and that's good and well. But if we zoom out, what matters the most, right? How much sleep are you consistently getting? How stressed are you? Do you have social support? Um, even, you know, speaking more broadly, social determinants of health. Uh, influence musculoskeletal pain and the outcomes from seeking care for those conditions way more than anything Mm -hmm. a clinician does to them, right? So if um, you're stressed about finances, or you are experiencing food insecurity, or don't have a consistent place to live, or maybe you do come from a place of privilege, but are undergoing, say, the stress of grad school, like I think of myself living, you know, four or five different places in however many months, um, during grad school that even just that fluctuation in housing and not having a steady place definitely affected my stress levels Mm -hmm. and experience of different things. Um, so I think just kind of asking that low hanging fruit, right? Am I moving? Am I sleeping? Am I hydrated? Am I stressed? Do I feel like I have people I can count on? Um, are just the really basic things to ask. And then, The other basic question, too, would be, did I do something out of the ordinary, right? So, Alyssa, I'm going to rag on you a little bit here. That's fine. You rag on me. What You you and I talked, and we traced it back to, you know, you had a successful ultra-training cycle, no issues, no pain, and then out of the blue, went and hiked and backpacked a ton in, was it Colorado or somewhere? Yeah. you You were physically very fit, but you had a spike in your workload that was totally different than what uh, everything else you had been doing. And instead of treating that as a, huh, let's give that a little bit of time and see if it resolves as you resu- resume normal activities, the PT you saw went down this rabbit hole of a bunch of other things that were wrong with you that weren't actually problems. And it just kind of picked up steam from there. So I think that's a really good illustration of
1: you know focusing on something that might not be the driver. And I ended up just running normally on my heel with big cushiony shoes and weight training, and all of my problems have now gone away. And I've run what three or four ultras now since with no pain, or three, three, yeah, three or four. I don't even know. A lot of them, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of things.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that's those are all like really good points. Um, not to to say that you straight up experienced a placebo effect but we do see that with pain and especially when a professional is telling you that you should be concerned with your body parts like uh being maybe hypermobile in your case Alyssa or x y or z um it can it can definitely seem reasonable for you to experience some some pain in like a placebo form that would then maybe interfere or maybe perpetuate that cycle um and I think one of the the ways that this shows up a lot that that um, I've experienced and I've seen other people experience this with posture. And I'd, I'd love to get your take on this, Taylor, because I think there's um, maybe a debate. I don't know um, if there's a consensus in your field about the importance of posture or um, if certain postures contribute to pain. And um, so, yeah, I'm looking to get your opinion on, on all of that. Yeah,
2: absolutely. I'm really glad that you mentioned plural of placebo, Kate, because there's actually something Pretty well documented called a nocebo effect, which is Yes, we just talked
0: about this with Stan too. So um yeah, we're like (laughs) season two, we're hitting like some really central themes, and that's one of them. So yes, let's like reiterate, drive it home.
2: Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of the opposite of a placebo effect, right? Where the placebo is you're not um you're receiving like say an inert pill, right, that you believe to be medicine and therefore has a positive effect on your symptoms. With the nocebo, you're receiving usually in the form of misinformation um, or something, you know, if we wanted to go the example of medicine, there was a case study published, a guy thought that he was getting the active pill, it was an antidepressant, overdosed and tried to commit suicide and showed up, this I think was in British Journal of Sports Medicine, but Google it, or we could put it in the show notes, I guess we can cut that out. (laughs) Um, But he showed up in the emergency room having all these physiologic symptoms when in fact he had taken the inert pill. And once the emergency room doctors got in touch with the study coordinator people and told him you had the inert pill, his blood pressure, and all his other vitals stabilized, but because he believed that he had taken a harmful substance, even though he didn't actually take a harmful substance. He had this massive physiologic response that landed him in the emergency room. So I think that's a nice little recap of nocebo. But to Kate, your point about posture, um, it's definitely a lot of debate. And I think sometimes, um, you know, debate happens at the ends of the spectrum. And it's just not as sexy to say, yeah, sometimes posture matters, and sometimes it doesn't, right? That's not very marketable. It's very marketable to say, posture never matters, move however the heck you want, right? And beat your drum and toot your own horn about that. But it's also very appealing to say, and comes across as being very um, complicated and smart when people market, oh, you know, look how the inferior tip of his scapula is sitting slightly higher and rotated, and if we fix that, that will affect his foot. You know, um, <laughs> so you can go down plenty of rabbit holes on social media. But I would definitely encourage people who are interested look up. Uh, JOSPTE did a great piece called "Sit Up Straight: Time to Reevaluate." There's a great little infographic with it. If you can't find it. I'm not telling you to do this, but you're a free person. You could choose to use Sci-Hub to find it, or you can email me and I'll send it to you. Um, But that's a a really good starting point for what does the evidence actually say, and how do we need to rethink the messaging surrounding posture, which is basically don't stay in one position too long.
0: Yeah. No, I think that's a great point. And I I think we've reiterated this several times already in this season that the it depends answer is hated by most listeners, but loved by us, because uh, we, of course, believe as the Messy Middle podcast that there are caveats to everything and posture being one of them. So I love that you said it's not so simple um, and straightforward. And it I imagine probably varies a lot based on the individual. So um, that's great. I, I think in general, when we have, uh, when we look at like the common concerns, uh, we can like kind of specify down. I know Alyssa has a lot of runners in her programs. And so some of our listener questions were running specific, um, sciatica, shin splints, um, you know, how glute firing, right? We, we talked about that already. Um, so can you touch on some of those things that you see commonly with runners and how you can, maybe create a preventative plan and, and managing those things. Or when you do arrive at something like shin splints, um, what is the best course of action for something like that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think the first thing I would say is so many people self-diagnose and they might not be right about their diagnosis. Um, and so just to have the humility, both you know, as a person experiencing pain, I get that it's really tempting to want to get on Google and figure it out and when you find something that seems like it fits your symptoms, hang your hat on that and then start searching for how do I fix that thing? Um, I think it can be really helpful to picture a Venn diagram, but like with many, many circles, a lot of common running complaints, the symptoms all overlap each other. Um, so if it's something that is persisting, go get an actual evaluation. Don't rely on Google to tell you it's your IT band or whatever else. Um But as far as prevention, that's such a tough thing, right? Because we can't prevent injury. We can reduce risk, but at the end of the day, shit happens. Um, I think the best thing you can do is workload management, right? So have a sensible progression in your running. Um, You can look at your intensity, right? So how hard are you running on your different runs? You can look at your overall weekly mileage. You can look at your overall frequency, um, and usually, and then I would also say, if you're going to try and self-modify your workload, only modify one variable at a time, because if you modify and it gets better, but you modified three things, well, which one was it, right? So if you can have the patience to just modify one variable at a time in those things, um, and oh, the other variable would be terrain, right? Are you trailer road? Are you running hills or flat? Um, but then you know, so say that persist and you want to you get better googling is only going to get you so far so yes go get checked out by a pt but if you're like oh i'm a healthy runner and i'm really afraid of getting an injury well number one an injury isn't the end of the world and you know i don't know the exact statistics but you probably are going to get hurt at some point and that's okay
1: doesn't mean you did anything wrong necessarily you it need just it, in- <laughs> i just looked this up actually for an instagram post the injury rate for novice runners is 17.8 injuries for every 1,000 hours, and recreational more trained runners is 7.7 per every 1,000 hours. I was going to debunk Jillian Michaels' statements on crossfit injuries, so I was comparing and contrasting. <laughs> so I actually happened to just look this up yesterday. So it's somewhere around around that per 1,000 hours, at right. least from what I found. And um, I think so. <laughs>
0: um, and. I, I, I was about to say I think uh, I have some epidemiological data that looked at this as well and uh, really the, like the rent injury um, it, it, it like it's kind of like a bell shaped curved I think I will I'm gonna look up the source and then I'll cut this out if this is completely inaccurate <laughs> I think what I what, um, or the opposite an inverted U where we see like more common injuries towards the beginning or like at extreme miles. So like your average runner probably is less likely to experience injuries than somebody who's a complete novice or somebody, uh, you know, potentially because they're ramping up too quickly or somebody who is on that like heavier side of running apparently.
2: Yeah, another good example of that, Kate, would be, you know, in the conversation about shod running with shoes versus barefoot, people will say, oh, barefoot runners had less injuries. Well, when you equalize or normalize miles barefoot runners actually had more injuries
0: so yeah yeah that's a great one Ooh, yeah
2: I think there's there is some interesting stuff out there another kind of fun tidbit while we're on this is that running in a motion control shoe actually has more um, higher rate of injury I believe than a neutral shoe so that's and you mean
0: shoes that correct for pronation and and things like that mm-hmm. right Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, I'll cut this out, but I just really want to stick it to somebody who yelled at me about my pronation because I do it, but it has kept me pain-free. So, like, I I had shoes that corrected for it, and it made me worse and gave me like knee pain. Whereas, like, when I run in a neutral shoe, I still pronate, but that feels fine for me. So,
2: yeah, it's I'm, I'll just go on a tangent with you here while we're there. i yeah, let's that- do it. If you watch me around, I like land so hard on the outside of my foot and I heard a really good, it's a, I think a British uh, podiatrist, he says that pronation and supination are like an elevator and what, like what, if you want to go up, you have to come down first, right? Like, yeah, (laughs) I love that. Um, We all land somewhat supinated and then roll into pronation so that we can push off our big toe.
0: Yes. Oh, pathology okay we we do have to leave part of this in because i think no, that's we're gonna just important. leave it all in because
1: i think that's pretty good i mean stick it we'd already trash talked my former pts let's call it okay <laughs> no by the time season two rolls around people those people aren't listening anyway right <laughs>
2: um but one more thing i would say there kate is i cannot overemphasize the importance of actually strength training for runners and why i say yes. actually, strength training, i do not mean pretending to strength train i mean actually lifting weights at sufficient intensity, um, as if you're an athlete and considering that your general physical preparation, um, Mm -hmm. enough said there, if I will say, you know, maybe a good link on that would be Derek miles, very exhaustive (laughs) blog post about that.
0: Yes. And I've, I've heard a, um, I don't remember where this source was from, but it's kind of like a quote is like you, you get muscular endurance from your sport. So when you show up in the gym, you need to be training for strength, you know? So, well, we'll dive that
1: into that because I think this is important because this ties into like, I mean, God, I got into running, but I came from strength, even though I technically ran my whole life. And I was like, wow, this is garbage that everyone's getting out here. I was like, wow, this is truly tragic. No wonder people are like complaining left and right about everything that they have going on. So, um, (laughs) You know, I was like, I was like, "What a second. I was like so insecure about being the strength running girl, and I was like, oh no, i'm gonna I'm gonna save a lot of women from doing this., um, but can we talk about things? because I think a lot of what runners get, right is banded body weight, weird pulsy stuff that talks about like, your glute firing, you know what I mean, and getting your glutes strong and your glutes ready for all of your for all of your running. But it's like little weird banded movements and things like that, or weird mobility flows. So, can you talk about maybe um, like the actual use of these things, like actual use of strength training? What that's going to look like for runners, more than just like appropriately loading, and then like the. Maybe debunk a little bit some of that stuff where they do like their, their glute f- firing glute warm up if that's appropriate. Or like you kind of alluded to that early in the podcast. So I made a note here to come back to it because I did. I do know that's something that we get asked about a lot. And you see that in strength training too. But I feel like I see that all the time with runners is it's just like you get a glute preparation circuit with bands and that's your strength training. Like that's it. You call it a day and you go for your run.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that at an intensity that's probably appropriate for a warm up and not much more. Um, I believe it was Chris Johnson is a PT in the Seattle area and he made a post recently about, um, I think it was him talking about a couple different studies that were looking at like the role of the glute during a stance phase of running. Um, and then he was providing like some actual banded exercises for that to work on that. Um, do I agree with that or disagree with that? Eh, you know maybe if there's a big deficit, that would be an appropriate place to start, right? So maybe you're coming back from an injury and you haven't been weight bearing as much. But I think you have to ask the question if, okay, we know two and a half times body weight are the kind of the total ground reaction force going back up through my body with every step that I take running. Some of that's going to be, you know, absorbed, if you will, at the hip. Do I really think, my resistance band is going to in any way prepare me for that force. Mm -hmm. Probably not. Now, again, if you have a deficit there that is objectively measured and not just somebody laying you on the table and pushing on you with no new device to measure force output or no comparison side to side, you know, that's what a lot of PTs do, right? They put you on the table, you lay on your side, you lift your leg, they push on it, they break it. You, or they don't break your leg, but they break, you know, your <laughs> resistance. And then they tell you you have a weak glute and you believe them because, oh, look, they pushed on my leg and I couldn't fight back. Well, if you put yeah. anybody on the table in that position, you can probably break them. Um, that's just, it's just a silly test, right? The test was Mm -hmm. really developed for people post polio. So, you know, I think you have to ask, how are we assessing glute weakness? Sorry, if this is too rambly, you can cut it out if you want. Um, No, I like it. Okay. But you need to ask the question, like, how are you assessing or identifying this glute weakness in the first place? Like, what makes you think that you need this, like, quote unquote, lateral hip strength? And who is to say that you wouldn't get as much or more Um, force through the hip and recruitment of the glutes from, say, doing a heavy split squat. Um, So Mm -hmm. what should strength training look like for runners? It should look like comprehensive strength training in multiple planes, right? So Mm -hmm. you should be doing some sort of loaded squat. You should be doing some sort of loaded hinge. And then something in the frontal plane is probably not a bad idea, like a lateral lunge or something similar. And then do not neglect your calves because everybody does. Um, And then upper body too, right? It doesn't have to be running specific. You should be loading into pushing and pulling as well. And carries are probably not a bad idea either. Um, Now, if you're dealing with a particular injury, then isolation work might be appropriate. But Mm -hmm. if you're just treating strength training as something you do to make yourself more robust and to make you a more efficient runner, just basic
1: strength training is all you need. And I think a lot of things I see too and. This is ties into maybe more personal narratives is that a lot of people when they run, they come, you know, they start like a, from the couch of 5k, they didn't really run a lot, or maybe they just do recreationally and they just don't view themselves as like overall athletes. And so they don't train or prepare their bodies like that. But when you look at elite runners, they're doing strength training. They're actually pretty strong for how small they are. You know what I mean? Like, so I think that people miss seeing that and maybe even feeling like, okay, well, they're even athletic enough to consider that because they, they're just running for fun, you know what I mean? Health, but then they get those little nags and niggles and they complain and forgetting that, you know you know, that's part of the equation too. So I, I'm, yeah. I'm appreciative of that because I know I get asked about this stuff all the time. Um, and I'm a big show for strength training for runners, but maybe if they hear from someone with doctor in front of their name, they'll listen a little more yeah, on yeah. that. Um, and there's tons yeah. of great resources on that, uh, for people and we can link Derek's thing below. I'm a big fan of barbell medicine stuff generally. Um, cause there's other resources out there besides me. Shockingly, they're just harder to find. So
2: yeah, um Montana Running Lab would be that's Rich Willie out of mm-hmm. University of Montana, his account is a great option as well. And then let's just to uh, circle back to something that you had said earlier, you or we mm-hmm. had talked about earlier when we were saying how you know who's to say you have to, you know, squat with your toes ahead, ask to grass, in order to touch a barbell. If you're a runner, who's to say you have to pull a conventional deadlift? Like you can use a trap bar and that's fine. Your mm-hmm. you're a rack pull and that's fine for your heavy hinging if for whatever reason you don't like getting all the way to the floor. You can do a squat to a bench and you tap the bench and stand back up. Don't let, you know, proficiency, quote unquote, proficiency with a barbell
1: movement be a barrier to doing the movement. Yes, I, I,
2: you I love that. confident loading it.
1: No, I, lo- I love that. Cause that's what I, I mean, we talk about this all the time with clients. I give them an entire swap sheet and I'm like, okay, they're like, can I do this for this? I'm like, yeah, that's fine. Absolutely. Whatever you're comfortable with. Because at the end of the day, that's probably what matters most for most general people. Totally. Yeah.
0: Smith yeah. machine
1: is your friend for loaded calf work, you know?
0: Yeah. yeah. There you go. All right. Um, Pivoting to our last topic here. Um, the is blank good category. And Alyssa and I have talked about this in general that is blank good question always is you know characterized by an answer that has to do with it depends you know but Mm -hmm. um maybe if there is some utility in any of these things could you tell us the uh the things that it depends on if possible so uh, some of the things that we've been asked about were like theraguns foam rolling and cupping so are there any utility in those types of um you know treatments or or um I guess you could say treatments. Uh, and if so, when is appropriate to use those those things?
2: Yeah, the first thing I would say to that is none of those things are skilled interventions, right? You don't need somebody with a doctor in front of your name
0: mm-hmm. to do them.
2: Um, some people love the way they feel. Some people don't. None of it changes your tissue appreciably. So if you want to order a set of cups off of Amazon, knock yourself out. Like I personally kind of like the way it feels especially like mm-hmm. on my low back. I don't own them, but I've had it done to me and I'm like, Oh, this is kind of cool. Um, if you like a Theragun, I don't like it cause I'm ticklish and I'm like, this feels really weird. If you like it? You can actually order like an attachment for a jigsaw. That's way cheaper. Just do that. <laughs> you know, a lot of those things are, it's not even a question of like, is it good or bad? It's what's the purpose of it. And often the purpose that it is marketed as is not correct, right? That none of those things are mm-hmm. breaking up adhesions right. or changing your fascia or decompressing whatever. They're just—I tell patients we're just talking to your nervous system, right?
0: Mm-hmm. A great example
2: would be if somebody, you know, oh my knee hurts during lunges, and then they foam roll for thirty seconds and their knee feels better, and maybe they have a meniscus tear. I'll tell them, well, we didn't just reach in there and touch your meniscus, so what do you think happened? And then, you know, you kind of get the head scratch of like, I don't know, like, we just we're messing with your nervous system, right? We, we gave you an input of this some sort of tactile input that mm-hmm. then for whatever reason, shit hurts less after it. Cool. Let's capitalize on that. But you don't need me to do that to you. You can do that to you.
0: Yeah, I yeah. like that because I, I think it goes back to, um, you know, do what feels good to you and maybe some of those things are marketed uh in a way that's not factual and uh that is you know concerning to some degree but if you're just using it because it generally feels good and it there's no research thus far that shows it to be harmful then I mean I think we talked about this in our wellness episode and in the last season uh, it's Mm -hmm. just kind of like picking what feels good to you so long as there's there's no harm totally
1: yeah, I know. I mean, like, Reed just got me a Theragun for Christmas last year, and I was, like, afraid to tell my social media followers, because they were like, oh, my God, is that fixer heel injury? And we literally just think it feels nice. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, we do, too. Like, n- like, my, my like, you know I have shoulder issues. It just feels good on that. I don't think it's fixing anything. You know what I mean? But it feels good on it, and so I'll do it. And I don't think it's, it's not hurting anyone, right? Like, it, it's it's perfectly fine. It's probably an overpriced piece of equipment that he didn't need to get me as a present, but you know, like, it feels good and it's easier than, like I guess, flopping my own body on a foam roller if I really wanted to. So I think that's a great context of putting that in there for people. And that comes back to all things. I think when people say when you tell people the utility isn't what they think it is, they tend to panic and be like and freak out about it. But that doesn't inherently mean it's bad to use or do. Um, so I'm glad that you reframe really that as that for people. So to clarify, Taylor, you can correct me if you're wrong. if you like to roll around on things or use their guns or whatever this is, keep doing it. if it feels good. If not, don't feel pressured to do it. You're not hurting yourself by not doing it. So I guess then I know uh Kate has more experience in this, but the utility of yoga oh, for wow. as like a, a stretching mobility yeah, go ahead, okay, I, I guess
0: yeah um so i 'm an ex yoga instructor, which is fun uh, but, um my uh practice of yoga was uh maybe a little bit more educational and um foundational and maybe exposing people to it as a mind body exercise and uh there I know that there are different styles of yoga, so i don 't love when people ask general questions of like the utility of yoga because there are so many different ways you can experience yoga. Um, There's some that are very flexibility oriented where you'll be holding um, poses for, you know, I think you mentioned earlier something where you're like holding for 10 minutes at a really low uh, level of stretch. And so there's that type of yoga. There's also yoga that um, flows through range of motion. Um, There's yoga that holds poses that are challenging and um, are requiring more muscular endurance. So I think that... The, this question that was posed by our listeners, the utility of yoga um, is really multifaceted, but I wasn't sure if you had any information, uh, maybe research-wise on the utility of it in terms of injury prevention, or um, on the flip side, I know being hypermobile is is maybe um, not a great thing when it comes to injury uh, risk. So uh, if you had any thoughts on that, that would be great.
2: Yeah, I'm not so much aware of any research saying that hypermobility or just generally a lot of mobility puts you at risk so much as not being super flexible doesn't increase Mm. your risk typically. Um, but in terms of yoga, yeah, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head with it's hard to generalize to one thing. So just maybe a question that you could ask yourself is what sort of stimulus is my body receiving from this particular type of practice? Right. Mm -hmm. So like for me, if I go to a yin class, which I love, um, that's just me relaxing in a way and yeah. moving slightly more than lying on the couch, right? It's And it's good relaxing. for sleep. Yeah. Yeah. I have fallen asleep. So different, different outcomes.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. I tell, I tell. I used to tell my students um, in the relaxation period that we have at the the end of class, like if you fall asleep, great. I'm so happy for you. Like some people feel like they can't fall asleep in a yoga class. I'm like, no, do it. It's it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah.
2: And I think my bigger critique of yoga is um, not the practice itself, but sometimes there's a lot of misinformation that comes from instructors. You Absolutely. Have some pretty cringy things have been said. And I think sometimes the emphasis on, you know, range of motion or flexibility and a lot, you know, quote unquote alignment can be mm-hmm. prohibitive to some people. And <clears throat> that's my bigger stick with it is not so much, you know, I think the benefit you get out of it, what you put into it um, in a lot yeah. of these things. And also, you know, yes, it takes a lot of strength to say like, what is it? Is it Chaturanga? That's like the bottom of a push-up? Yeah. It's a push-up. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But yoga is not all, not really something that can be overloaded, especially in a class sure. setting. So it's not a substitute for resistance training. Um, but I would just hate for anyone to feel like they couldn't do yoga because of their, either their range of motion, or maybe they feel or perceive their posture to be different in some way. Um, or they're not skinny and white, or whatever else. The yeah, issue.
0: absolutely. No, I, I really think that that like nails my perspective on it. And um, why, like, I'm hesitant to talk about yoga, um, because I think people have those perceptions that um, it's, you know, an exclusive club of thin white women who are like super flexible. And yoga can and, and should be for everyone and everybody and every flexibility and there's so many different benefits from it. And like you said, maybe strength training, <laughs> like you should do in the gym and not in your yoga studio. But there are other mind-body benefits when we talk about like um, mindfulness and like using your your breath coinciding with movements to help you stay focused on the present. Or maybe the, the relaxing yin yoga helps you sleep better at night. Or maybe a vinyasa yoga, um, even though it's not, an adequate stimulus in terms of strength training, you're still um, moving in a way that can be kind of challenging and just makes you feel good. You know, it's physical activity. And so I think that um, when we talk about it depends for everything for yoga, it's, it depends what are you trying to get from it. Um, and maybe using that in place of physical therapy or strength training isn't ideal, but if you're looking for maybe some more mind-body benefits, then uh, uh, absolutely yoga is a great practice.
2: Yeah, and it's funny you brought up physical therapy there at the end. I'm trying to remember, I don't remember what the study was, but um, I have read a study that compared standard of care physical therapy for low back pain to participation in yoga. Oh, interesting. I can't remember if there was either no difference between them or yoga came out on top. It was one or the other. Oh, okay. Um, But in general, there's another study I'm thinking of for low back pain that shows that general exercise is no better or is as good or better than these like very specific individualized programs. So that kind of isn't fitting with that as well. Right, like movement is good. Yeah. If yeah. you're going to sit on your couch versus do yoga, by all means, do yoga. If you're going to strength train versus do yoga, then ask the question, what am I trying to gain from it? I think yeah. too, there's also that benefit of, you know, it doesn't hurt to put your body in positions that is not usually exposed to, right? Um, yeah, I have been in positions in yoga classes that I would not have put myself into otherwise. And <laughs> I mean, was it good or bad? It, it depends for me. I took it away as
1: a net good because it was challenging and I
2: like being challenged. Yeah.
1: yeah. No, I really like that. So building on that then, um, I, get, I do get asked on this a lot because people on my page are aware that I have hypermobility and I've struggled with that or I've been diagnosed or had issues with doctors, that whatever. But then they'll, they'll think that I can speak to this, but I think I'd rather you speak to this on is hypermobility actually... Is big of an issue as people make it seem what to do to work along that how to maybe you know make it so that i think people think that that's going to lead to injury or it's bad or it's harmful where like, because that's the opposite extreme even though everyone seems to be seeking mobility at the same time and so i know my personal experience strength training is basically like the cure-all for everything that i had maybe an issue with historically but that might not be the one size fits all so can you speak around maybe that that view and mindset about mobility and maybe those who are hypermobile and struggle with that. And the way to approach that, if you're not, you know, coming from what's maybe not the typical end of the spectrum. Yeah.
2: I would say if you're somebody that is hypermobile, but you don't have a particular diagnosable condition, mm-hmm. carry on with your life and don't worry about it. If you're someone that has a particular, like, I'm thinking of like Ehlers-Danlos, you know, hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos, mm-hmm. there are maybe some other considerations and you should see a professional. Um, before you just dive in headlong um, that, to get some guidance specific to your experience of that condition. So that's a For the people listening, that's a condition that is genetic and affects all kinds of connective tissue, not just the musculoskeletal cl- um, system. So probably good to double check it with somebody that works with that specifically. Um, but in general, if you're a little bit Gumby, whatever, you do you. Keep training. I love that. I do. I mean, make the argument that there might be times when, well, if you're really bendy, you probably don't need to stretch into end range of motion. Or a good example of that is, you, my uh, shoulders are hypermobile into external rotation, and when I injured one of them, um, my clinical instructor was Teddy Wilsey at the time, and he said, he's like Taylor, why don't you just like avoid end range for like six months. And he's like, your shoulder's already so flexible in that direction. You're probably just irritating it every time you end up there. And so I did. Like, Mm -hmm. I lost a little bit of range of motion in my shoulder on purpose. And I think that probably contributed to the healing process.
0: That's really interesting. I I like that.
1: Which speaks, which reminds me. I need to talk to you about my shoulder, but we'll save that for (laughs) off the podcast.
0: (laughs) I feel like um, we covered such a good range of topics, and I know Alyssa joked that she was doing this selfishly so that uh, when people came to her for questions, she had a good resource. But I, I really, truly think that we have put together like – we've answered so many listener questions and and talked about some of our own personal experiences in a way that I think – Hopefully helps people um, maybe relieve some of those concerns they might have had around uh, the conversation of injury and pain. And am I too flexible or in, too inflexible? Or um, how is my range of motion? I think generally we can we can say that most people are worrying. About things that they don't need to worry about, which is like a good thing to um, like a good conclusion to arrive at. Um, But I want to pass the gauntlet back to you, Taylor, if there's anything you think we left unsaid, that's really important to this conversation to add. Um, And if not, um, just tell us where people can find you and uh, how they can work with you.
2: Yeah, I think the only other thing I would add there, Kate, is that pain is a very normal part of life experience. And not Mm -hmm. all pain is because you have some sort of Pathology. Um, and particularly just kind of low grade comes and goes, probably not anything to f- freak out about and possibly not even something to seek care for. Um yeah. which is maybe a little counterintuitive to hear that from a healthcare professional. No, that's great. I love that. <laughs> yeah. And then the other thing that I would um just kind of wrap up as you we've talked a lot about this it depends and i think that's Mm -hmm. so true i also think that it depends can be a little bit of a cop-out if you don't then flesh out what depends in your ways Mm -hmm. that you know kate you did a great job of fleshing that out when we were talking about yoga um so just yeah stay critical ask those questions of the content you're consuming on instagram of the healthcare provider you see in person you know Etc., cetera, etc., cetera. of the things that we talk about on this podcast, right? You know, I would be mm-hmm. more than happy if you think I said something that you're like, what the heck, Taylor? Head over to my Instagram, which is at TaylorEckle.dpt. And you could message me, but if it ends up in message requests, I might not see it before it goes away. So there also is an email button on my. There's platform. a time
0: limit on that? I didn't know that.
2: They disappear. I somehow went from like. Double digits to single digits because I just decided I wasn't going to look at them and they went away. Anywho. I did not know that either.
0: I've got the power. Yeah, that's my okay. new strategy. No, yeah,
2: okay. <laughs> there, there is a high chance I will ignore you if you are in message requests because I just can't. Um, or I oh will deal with it. Um, but you could definitely email me and then I will not ignore you. Um, and then you can also find me. My website is integritytrainingproject.com. And I'm on Twitter for more like PT specific things
1: at Taylor underscore Echol. Amazing. And can you pitch yourself? I'm going to force you to pitch yourself for this specifically on how people, obviously you talked about your integrity training project, but, or did I totally miss that? You talked about, you do, do you still do
0: virtual one-on-one consults do. with people?
1: I do. Yeah. We haven't talked yeah, about it. Tell us yet.
0: more about your services and like what, yeah. um, what people might be interested in, in receiving like services from you.
2: Yeah, yeah. So kind uh, of we'll go from cheapest to most expensive. How's that sound? Uh, Perfect. the cheapest thing I offer <laughs> is called the Simplified Training Template, which is a Google Sheets spreadsheet with little drop-down menus that lets you select your um exercises from you know predetermined lists that you can then reuse for multiple training blocks. And it also comes with a guide for kind of general cardiovascular training as well as suggestions for rep schemes that you can use. Um so that hopefully makes structured training more accessible to more people. Um, so that's my that. first option. Then the Integrity Training Project is coming out very shortly, TBD Exactly When, and that's the subscription-based training. Very similar to Little List Method with the the key difference being um, every month we'll have a video of me narrating through the programming and why I picked the exercises I did, what the thought process is behind those. Mm. And my hope there is that, especially for students and clinicians, but really anybody who wants to learn more about how to make their own workouts, they can learn by doing. They don't have to go take a course in exercise fizz or you muddle through this kind of like, mm-hmm. oh, I don't know what I should buy to learn this, but hey, I can get a good workout and I can learn why I'm doing what I'm doing along the way. Um, that's the Integrity Training Project. There are a couple different tiers for that to accommodate different skill levels. And then I do do
0: one-on-one
1: consults. Sorry,
0: this will go out in spring. So that should be available. It should be available by
1: then. We'll link it if that's the case. Perfect. Yeah, Yeah, it will be. So it'll be Um, linked
0: in the show notes, everyone.
2: Awesome. Linked in the show notes. And then I do do (laughs) one-on-one consults and um, coaching as well. And those open up from time to time. So just check my... Probably the link in my bio on Instagram is the easiest way to access
1: that. And I will shamelessly plug Taylor for herself right here. A lot of people do ask me all the time because I don't do personalized one-on-one coaching right now until I'm done with school. Um, and that's Taylor is one person that I would actually refer out to or recommend for, for more like I have a lot of friends that are more lifestyle, but Taylor's definitely one. If you have like more specific strength or athletic-based goals, she would be probably one of my top recs for that. So definitely reach out to Taylor if that's something that you're looking for. Or you even like my style of training and you're looking for something similar to that, Taylor is the one that I'd probably outsource that to. And obviously, she, I work with her for other reasons. So we'll plug all of that in the show notes because I 10 out of 10 recommend. <laughs> 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 for- yeah, you don't have to be hurt to work with me. <laughs> Yeah, no. I love that. That should be your slogan. (laughs) Oh, incredible. Okay. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Messy Middle Podcast. I hope that this is the most highly downloaded episode of all time because this is the most highly requested topic of all time. And hopefully you guys enjoyed everything Taylor has to say. A lot of information in here. So come back to it. Keep it as a resource. So much goodness. And if you guys like this episode, make sure to follow Taylor on Instagram. Connect with her. Tag us in your stories. Tag her. And be sure to always rate, review, subscribe, and tell everyone about the Messy the Podcast. So <laughs> on that
0: note, we want you to live well,
1: demand better, stay messy. Yay! Woo-hoo! Thank you. Thank you, guys. Yay. We'll see you next week.